hear God's holy and inspired word for our good. Starting in verse 14. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. So being a part of the Reformed tradition, being part of a Reformed church in our structure, uh, we know that there are some marks of what it means to be a part of a true church. The first thing is the right preaching of the Word of God. That is the first mark of a healthy church, that the Word of God is rightly handled, rightly preached, rightly applied to the lives of the people. But then secondly, the next piece is that there is the right administration of the sacraments in accordance to the Word of God. So as we share in baptism and share in the, the, uh, the Lord's Supper, they are rightly administered for the people of God, for your joy, for your nourishment, so that we may commune together. The third mark, though, is that we experience church discipline, both formative and corrective application of the Word of God in the lives of disciples. Right preaching, right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. All these things work together to build up the body of Christ. Today we're going to start walking through a four-part series on the, per, on the subject of personal evangelism. And for some of you, you're going to go, oh, you got to be kidding. It kind of makes you squishy and squirmy when talking about evangelism because it means you might have to get out of your shell, your bubble. Some of you may have experienced somewhere along your walk with Christ or participation in a church, a high-pressure kind of guilt being applied to you of, man, you got to share your faith. If you're not sharing your faith, you're not evangelizing, going out and standing on street corners, handing out tracts, you are less of a Christian. That's what you're supposed to be doing. But the reality is, evangelism, sharing the gospel, is a necessary expression of the faithful preaching of the word. It's, it's a necessary expression. As the word of God is preached and it impacts the heart of a man, a woman, and a child, it is a necessary outgrowth, a necessary thing that just naturally should be coming as we are changed by the gospel, we share the gospel. So I believe that for us, if we have a renewed focus on evangelism, it could have a dramatic effect on our church. A dramatic, life-changing, uh, culture-changing effect on our church. So I hope over the next four weeks that you'll leave motivated to embrace God's purpose in your life when it comes to sharing your faith. In fact, I'm hoping that you'll join me in this simple prayer. Lord, open a door. Open my mouth. And open their heart. Lord, open a door. Open my mouth. Open their heart. A simple prayer that can be easily prayed every morning, or even as you're driving, or as you're walking through Walmart, or your favorite restaurant, Lord, open a door, open my mouth, open their heart. So our plan for the next four weeks is we're going to have four, four parts. The first one is applying the gospel then living the gospel, and then sharing the gospel, and finally celebrating the gospel. And the final week is, is timed with Easter Sunday. And our hope is that you will use that, my hope is that you will use that opportunity 
to invite someone who, who is searching for Christ, searching for spiritual things, searching for meaning and hope in their life, that you will actually have the courage and the faith to open your mouth, trusting that God will open their heart. On Easter Sunday, we are going to celebrate the way in which the gospel changes everything. And it will be the culmination of these three weeks as we learn about the gospel. So our, our subject this morning is applying the gospel. And I hope to show you uh, maybe a different motivation for evangelism that you've maybe been used to. My guess is some of you, like I've said earlier, are a little queasy, a little uncomfortable about sharing, sharing the gospel, really authentically and real and to the point sharing the gospel. Maybe you've been squeezed into it. That's not what we're going to do this morning. I'm not going to give you handout cards and have you put down names and then this week have it give you an assignment to go out and share the gospel with these people and come back with them and check, check off all your you know, boxes. Did you check, talk with this person? Did you pray with this person? Did you share the gospel with this person? Did you baptize this person? What did you do with this person? We're not going to be doing this. We're going to give you a proper motivation to share the gospel, not by guilt. So Romans 1, 14 to 17 is our text for this morning, and it includes two very winsome parts. First, Paul simply tells the believers in Rome that he cannot wait to get to Rome so that he can preach the gospel to them. He wants to preach the gospel to the believers who are already in Rome. And then secondly, he, he tells them why he loves the gospel so very much. And I think the key is this, rooting evangelism in our love for the good news. Rooting the gospel in our love for the good news. And I think we do this regularly, daily, by applying the gospel to ourselves. So, in this, this first chapter of Romans, it gives us a window into the heart of Paul and what, what he believes about the gospel. He's writing to a group of believers who are already established in Rome who he has never met before. He's never met these people. He's heard about them, and it's clear that he just longs to, to come and to meet them in Rome. In 1 verse 8, he's heard about their faith. In 1 verse 9 and 10, he prays for them regularly. In, in verse 10, he also earnestly earnestly desires to visit with them he wants to in verse 12 he wants to encourage them in their faith and in 13 he says that he had previously even tried to make a visit to them clearly paul's heart was in rome you can see in verse 13 his goal that i might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul's mission in life was to take the gospel beyond the, the, the boundaries of Israel, beyond Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He, he wanted to go beyond Jerusalem. And he wanted to go to Rome. And Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. It was a place of great power and influence. It was a strategic location to, to share the gospel. You go to Rome and people go out down the Roman roads and they too will share the gospel. But Paul's motivation, Paul's motivation was not just related to Rome's strategic influence. He believed he had an obligation to reach everyone. Everyone with the good news of Jesus Christ. His vision for the advancement of the gospel included, peop included people from all walks of life. All walks of life. Therefore, he felt an obligation, like he says in verse 14, an obligation to both the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. The term barbarian was a blanket, blanket description that referred to non-speakers or other nations. So he's just saying, listen, Jew, Greek, wise, unwise, you, you name it, 
I have an obligation to bring the gospel to everyone. And when Paul says in verse 14 that he is eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, he certainly had in mind people who had never heard the gospel. That was always on his heart. But he has more in mind. Paul intended to preach the gospel to those who had not heard it and those who have heard it. So talking about the gospel is not limited to those who have never heard. Unbelievers need to know the gospel, but believe, friends, brothers and sisters of Christ, you need to rehearse the gospel every day. You need to rehearse the gospel. And honestly, this was kind of an epiphany for me some 10, 12 years ago before we started Missio Day Church while I was still in youth ministry. This was an epiphany that believers actually need to rehearse the gospel. That the gospel is for me as a believer just as much as it is for an unbeliever. I used to think that the gospel was simply something for unsaved people who needed to hear and believe. And once you were saved, you just moved on beyond the gospel. In my mind, there was a hard and fast line between justification, which has that moment where your, your sins are forgiven, your status before God changes from being lost and broken and his hatred against you to being part of the beloved. So a hard and fast line be between justification and sanctification, where you're becoming more holy and growing in spiritual maturity. The problem is that I did not understand how the gospel applied to my life and applied to my ministry beyond knowing that I was going to heaven. I thought the gospel was the starting point, just the starting point. And while it's true, that's totally incomplete. The Bible's understanding of salvation is much more holistic. And the gospel is much more transformative. Paul experienced that amazing transformation on the Damascus Road. He was a man who was seething with hatred for the church. Seething. And it was there on the Damascus Road where he had seen the way it completely transformed his life. And in Romans 1.5, we see that Paul's goal was not just for converts, but converted people who embraced the obedience of faith. In other words, the gospel is the starting point for all of us. It was not that Paul never needed to hear the gospel again. On the contrary, rehearsing the gospel, even for believers, was a vital part of his life and his ministry. Remembering the gospel. I need to keep remembering and rehearsing the gospel and applying the gospel to my life. Believers, brothers and sisters, you need to every moment of the day, as much as you can, remember the gospel. Apply the gospel. Live in the gospel. Celebrate the gospel. Share the gospel. It's not a one-and-done thing. Verses 16 through 17 provide a window into Paul's um, soul as to why he is passionate about the gospel and his desire to preach it in Rome. The word for is used three times in this text, and it helps us dig deeper into Paul's motivation and our own motivation. So I want to give you three reasons why you need to preach the gospel to yourself and to others. Good Dutch guy, three-point sermon, got it? Here we go. First, I am not ashamed. That's the first reason. Paul states unequivocally, unequivocally that part of the reason for his desire to preach the gospel is that he is not ashamed of the gospel. The word shame here means that Paul would feel if he were involved, how he would feel if he were involved in un, a worthless cause or following a dubious person. Shame, man. It, if I was following somebody who was worthless or dubious or crime-filled, I would have shame. 
But here he states it negatively. He states it negatively. Paul is, what he is saying is he really loves the gospel. He is saying that he is proud of the gospel. He is saying he has a big heart for the gospel. And the result is that he, it isn't hard for him to talk about the gospel. But what do I mean about this gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I mean that the message of the Bible involves these fundamental truths. First, I am absolutely imperfect, totally flawed. I have sinned many, 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 many ad infinitum times. I am totally powerless. I cannot fix my heart. I cannot fix my life. I am, I am hopeless because of that. But here's the beauty. I am loved. Jesus died and he accepted me. I am forgiven. God has cleansed me by the power of his spirit. I am changed. I have received Christ. And repenting fundamentally changes who I am from the inside out. I have hope. I have hope. Real life comes from his power and I have a future. I am forever marked by Jesus' transforming work. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. I believe in the gospel. And this is good news. This is amazing news. It's the kind of news that you cannot help but share with people. It's an absolutely unbelievable message. Some of you, including me, have a very easy time about talking about the things that we're affectionate about. Right? Husbands, wives, children, friends, work. Man, I could talk a, a year or two about my children, about my wife, about my marriage, about my ministry. And I could talk. You, you, you get me in a coffee shop, I'll keep talking. I'll keep talking. But when's the last time we've had that same kind of thing where we talk affectionately and powerfully because we believe that it is the power of God, which is the next thing. But we're not ashamed of it. I'm not, ashamed of, I'm not ashamed of my wife. I'm not ashamed of my kids. I'm not ashamed of my ministry. I'm not ashamed of God has made me. So I'm going to talk about it. I am not ashamed of God's powerful, point two, powerful gospel. I'm not ashamed. And neither should you if you are in Christ. But the second reason that Paul gives for his passion for the gospel is the reality, the realness of the gospel. It has power. He says it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul understood the power of the gospel to save people from their sins and to radically change their lives. If I'd asked for a testimony right now about the power of God to change lives, some of you would go, I'll give you a testimony. I was dead, I was a, an addict, I was a this, I was a that, but God got a hold of my heart and he changed me. I was hopeless. I was on a path to, I was going to hell in a handbasket. But God, by his power, he saved me. Paul knew what the gospel had done in his life. And he knew what it accomplished in the lives of other people. There, was, there is and was power in the gospel. Paul knew of the gospel's ability to, to transform and transcend people and cultures. It, it's amazing to see the way in which the gospel brought about meaning and purpose and mission in people's lives. It, it, the gospel gives people a new identity, a new motivation, and new actions. A relationship with Jesus Christ brought together Jews and Gentiles. It brought together slaves and masters, husbands and wives, parents and children, wealthy and poor, young and old, gay and straight. Addicts and those who are not addicts. All under the banner of Christ. And what brought them together? It was the transforming power of the gospel. And when you're marked by these truths, it changes 
absolutely everything. Every fiber of your being, it changes you. Not just knowing where you're going to go when you're dying. So the gospel is not just about a person's eternal destiny. The gospel is about a person's daily reality. You live in the power of the gospel every day. You apply the gospel to your life, this powerful gospel, every day. Let me show you two places where Paul does this and where he really gets it. In both cases, he applies the gospel to his life. He's a man who is just literally marked by the gospel. And this would be a beautiful thing if we could say this about me and say this about you. The first one is from 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 through 17. He said this, I thank Him who gives me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom? I am the foremost. I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. And then he breaks out into this doxology. To, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He's just going, he took me. He changed me by his power to the king. Oh, praise be to God. Look at what he's done to me. I was insolent. I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer. But he took me. He changed me by his power. And he made me somebody else by his mercy. Praise be to God. And can you understand why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10, he says this. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that. Some of us get, kind of do, well, I am what I am. Paul's going, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that worked in me. Paul never could forget his past. He couldn't change who he was before. But he could eclipse it with the beautiful reality of the gospel. Jesus had become his Savior and his Lord. He was saved from his sins. But even more, he was saved from his self. The good news is more than just a future hope that we cling on to. Oh, I can't wait till I die. I'll be facing Jesus face to face. It's going to be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, no more dying. There's no more of that there. It's more than just a future hope. It is what you live in and through and by every single day because there is power in the gospel to save you, not just for your future, but to save you again today. It's what we cling to. The gospel is what you hear, what you receive, and what you believe. But it is also what you apply every single day. It's powerful once at that moment of your salvation. But, friends, it is powerful every single day. Every single day. 
You walk in here this morning with all your burdens, all your pain, all your whatever you carried in here. You got some kind of addiction. You got some kind of struggle. You got some kind of issue going on in your life. I don't think my, I don't think my marriage is going to make it. I don't think I can handle my kids. I don't think these finances are going to be done. I, what do I do with my job? What, what about this? I got all these things that I'm hiding and these things that everybody knows about. But you know what the beautiful thing is? Is Jesus meets you here with the power of the gospel, which is for your salvation today. You're right, you can't handle it. It's impossible. But he can. And that's not a promise that he's going to give you a gajillion bucks in your bank account so you're out of debt. And that's not saying that he's going to instantly fix your marriage, though he might. But there's power in the gospel to remember, you know what? He has saved me and he's done the impossible there. He took me from death to life. And Lord, I pray that you're going to do that same thing in some way, big or little today, progressively through the life of my life. Lord, there's power in the gospel today and tomorrow, next year. But verse 17 is as scandalous as it is glorious. It clearly shows us the path of God, or the plan of God and the path for salvation. The text says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What does this mean, this, this word even righteousness? It's kind of one of the Christian words that kind of are kind of cliche, and we, we use it a lot. Well, you got to be righteous, or i got the righteousness of Christ, or the righteousness of God. What is this righteousness that we're talking about? According to one commentator, Bob Utley, that I just love to to refer to. He says, righteousness is this covenantal reciprocal action between God and his highest creation. It is based on the character of God, the work of Christ, and the enabling of the Spirit to which each person must personally and continually respond appropriately. Righteousness deals with God's upstanding nature. He is our final measure for what it means to live. He is our guideline. He is righteous. He is holy. He is pure. There is nothing flawed about Him. And He is our standard. And our text shows us the righteousness of God is now revealed God's character and His holiness and His plan is now revealed for what? Revealed from faith in Christ for what? Your faith. This means that there is something being shown to us about God's righteousness and how we can be made right with God. He is our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God calling His people into relationship and He is saying, listen, I want to show you and give you something. I want to give you the righteousness of Christ. This means the means by which we are saved, the way that we are made right, is not by you working harder. Thank God. Because I think we're lazy by nature and we just give up after a while, right? Even if it's our favorite thing, it's like, that hobby's old. I'm done with this. It's time to move on to something new. If we had to work for our righteousness, we'd be screwed. But thanks be to God, God says, oh, no, no, no. I've got the means by which you are going to be made right. And it is by faith, by believing. And this is scandalous because no human being in this room who has ever lived deserves this kind of grace. No one can earn it. No one deserves it. No one here. A human being is saved by trusting in someone else's work. Trusting in their perfect keeping and their perfection. Trusting in them and that person is Jesus Christ. And then Paul links this message to the entire Bible saying, from faith, for faith. And what is he doing? He's quoting a famous passage in Habakkuk 1. 
or Habakkuk 2, that says the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's doing this connection from the old and the new and tying them together. And it's a powerful statement. It means that the righteous righteousness that comes to those who believe, those who trust, and those who put their faith in someone other than themselves are going to be changed. If you are putting your faith, your trust, and believing in your spouse, your friend, your work, your abilities, it is going to fail. That person's going to fail. But when you put your faith, your trust, and your belief in someone else who will never fail, you know what? There is power there. It means that you believe that even though you are imperfect, that you are powerless, God is not. And you are loved. You are his beloved. You are forgiven. You are changed. You have hope. And you have a future all because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. The gospel is what a person believes by faith once. But it's also something that you believe and apply every single day. It's a life of faith and a life by faith. A life of faith and by faith. Let me give you just a few examples. When it comes to your eternal destiny, you believe what God said is actually true. You believe it with your whole heart. I believe it. I know it. It's true. It's more true than the sun coming up in the morning. It is more true than the love that I receive from the people closest to me. It is more true than the dollar bill that is sitting in my pocket. It is true. I know that he has saved me. And I believe that because I have confessed with my mouth and I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, I believe with all that I am that I will be saved. It means that you believe. And as you get closer to death, because you know what? We all are. Or when a health scare comes your way, you still believe. Another example, when you think about your sense of identity and purpose, you apply the gospel by remembering that your worth, your worth doesn't come from what you do, but what has been done for you through Jesus Christ. That eclipses everything. It means that that purpose in life is not defined by your performance. Thank God. Because I probably already screwed up this morning and so have you. Thank God my identity is not found in my performance or in your performance, but by the promise of God's love for you. Another example, when you fail, not if, when you fail miserably, you apply the gospel by being reminded that God loved you even in an imperfect moment, in an imperfect state. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He knows the nakedness of who you really are. He knows the shame that you carry, the shame that you hide. He knows who you really are. And yet, he still loved you and loves you and forgave you and forgives you of all your sins. So when you fail miserably, he still loves you. And he still forgives you. Does he want you to repent? Absolutely. That does not give you permission to continue on in sin. But you remember, man, when I fail, it's not based on my performance. It is based on the love of Christ that he has for me. I can still be sustained. Another example. When you're afraid and you're filled with worry. That's none of us here, right? We're never afraid. We never worry about things. But when we are 
afraid. And when we do worry, we apply the gospel by re- being reminded that God is sovereign over all things. There's not a, a nook or cranny that God doesn't see or know about. There's not an action that he goes, oh, well, that surprised me. Where did that come from? I didn't see that coming. God is sovereign over all things. And while some events in your life may not make sense or may be absolutely alarming, we can rest knowing that God is able to give you grace for whatever you need. Or how about when you just face a normal day? Because a lot of times we have those mundane, ordinary, normal days. You still apply the gospel by reminding, being reminded that everything you do is for the glory of God. Everything. You're not just working. You're not just raising kids. You're not just studying at school. You're not just cleaning your bedroom, kids. You're not just cleaning your bedroom. Thank you, right, parents? You, you can thank me later. You're not just cleaning your bedroom or obeying your parents. You are doing everything for the glory of God who loved you, who saved you, and is keeping you. Do you see how transformative the gospel really is for you? It's not just your eternal destiny. It is how you live daily. As a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as an employer, as a carpenter, as a plumber, as a teacher, as a you name it. This is how we live daily. The gospel, in this respect, is a bit like marriage. I have found that the more often that I apply, really apply my marriage vows, the better and more godly of a husband I am. I take you, Laura, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold. Keep on going with those vows. Applying my vows to every area of my life is central to what it means to be married, to be one flesh, to be man and wife in a covenantal relationship. In fact, marriage has probably impacted my life in ways that I could have never imagined. I found that marriage is really, like Paul said, it is a mystery, a great mystery. And the more you apply yourself to this one flesh relationship, the greater and more glorious it becomes. And the same is true with the gospel. But infinitely more glorious and in more powerful kind of ways. Understanding the gospel is one thing. Understanding my relationship with my spouse is one thing. But it's an entirely different matter to apply the gospel when you apply the gospel in everyday life, it becomes your reality. It becomes your hope. It becomes your passion. It becomes your joy because you are affectionate for this Christ who died for you, who, who lived the life that I should have lived, who died the death I so deserved, who came alive again so that I could come alive again. My affections have changed. I cannot help but apply the gospel, that good news, to my life over and over and over again. So what does this have to do with evangelism? I hope it's obvious. The motivation to share your faith doesn't come from obligation alone. Sure, there is an aspect of obligation. But I think the greater motivation is to be captured, totally captured, enamored with the beauty of the gospel by applying it all the time. 
I'm so captured by Christ. I'm so enamored with him. I am so blown away that he has done this for me that I cannot help but apply the gospel in my life all the time. And people who share their faith truly share it out of that kind of emotion, out of those kind of affections of being captured and enamored with the beauty and the power of the gospel, the beauty and the power of Christ, those people who share their faith eclipse the fear of rejection and offense because they are convinced, absolutely convinced that the good news that they share is the greatest news in the world. I'm blown away. I, I don't care what you think. You're offended? I don't care. This is powerful. This is beautiful. This is, this is redeeming. This is life-changing. This is the best product, the best person, the best experience one could ever have. It's Jesus. You need to have him. You need to submit your life to him because it ha he has changed my life. I don't care if you're offended. I don't care if I'm scared. I cannot help but share because I'm continually applying it. Believers need to rehearse the gospel, constantly rehearse the gospel, so that they will apply the gospel and that they will share the gospel. We should never, get, never get over the beautiful implications of I am imperfect, I am powerless, I am loved, I am forgiven, I am changed, I have hope, I have a future. We should, we, we, we should never get over that. This is good news. It's glorious news. And the more we apply it to our lives, the more you apply it to your lives, the more likely you will share that good news. And if we're going to be passionate as a church and as individuals about evangelism, it has to start working with us. It cannot be a program that we have a committee that says, all right, we've got to have an evangelism program going on. Baloney. Let it work in you. Apply the gospel. Believe the gospel. Be enamored with Christ in such a way that you cannot help but it bubbling out in every conversation. Man, well, I've got to build a little bit of trust here. Do you have to build trust to talk about the one that you love the most in your human relationships? I don't dare talk about Laura because this guy doesn't know. I got built some trust. It might take about four months before I can talk about my wife and how wonderful she is. Don't want to offend anybody. Serious? Why, why would we apply that to Christ when we could talk freely about sports and about our, our affections for one another or in an organization or even a, a stinking product? We need to have hearts that are captured with the beauty of what the gospel is all about and what the gospel does. So here's what I'm asking you to do with the gospel. Know it. If you're taking notes, number one, know it. Be sure you know what the gospel really is about. Be sure that you are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ today. Be sure you know, know the gospel and that you believe in the gospel. Know the gospel. To rehearse the gospel. Once you, you know the gospel, rehearse it, preach it, restate it to yourself in the morning when you feel like you are defeated and, man, there's no way that I can make it. Rehearse the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Say, Paul, you know what? You're right. You are imperfect. You, you are hopeless. But you know what? You are loved. You are loved by Christ. And there's something beautiful and powerful about that. Remind your heart what is really true about you. Number three, rejoice in it. This is hard for some of us, to actually rejoice. Especially as the nice weather comes along, we could put down the windows and sing at the top of our lungs and look like that fool at the stoplight, right? Ah, sing it! And everybody's going, fool. But do we rejoice in the same way with the gospel? Where we, we, it's more than just facts, Right? It's more than just book knowledge. The gospel is something to be celebrated. 
Meditate over it. Pray over it. Sing about it. That's why I love us being a singing church. We're singing about the gospel. Sing about it. Rejoice over it. Don't get over the gospel. May you find joy in learning more about it. May you find joy about actually singing about it. Even if you sing terribly and off, off key, sing about the gospel. Celebrate it. Rejoice it. Rejoice in it. But lastly, number four, talk about it. When the gospel grabs your heart and it affects you deeply, and I'm talking about deeply, people will notice. When Jesus grabs your heart and transforms you, people notice it. But noticing is not enough. When they notice it, tell them why. Tell them that, help them see that the gospel is not just this head kind of knowledge thing. It's something that really works. It changes you. It changes everything about you. So know it, rehearse it, rejoice in it, and talk about it. Because you see, when applying the, applying the gospel helps us get our motivation for evangelism in the right place. Applying the gospel helps us get our motivation for evangelism in the right place by getting our affections in the right place. So this week, I pray that you will pray with me. Lord, open a door. Lord, open my mouth. And then Lord, open their hearts. Lord, open a door, open my mouth, open their hearts. Because friends, being ready for the answer to that prayer starts with learning how to apply the gospel. God, I've been looking forward to this message all week. <laughs> and even more so this morning. I've been struggling all week with, Lord, how does this apply to me? How, how do I know the gospel? How do I just rehearse the gospel? How do I celebrate and rejoice in the gospel? And then, God, how in the world... Am I to talk about it? And Lord, you have given me an opportunity just this morning to talk about the gospel. But God, I, I confess that this week I met a man named Gene and I dropped the ball. I just gave him some great actions by helping him alongside the road, but I never shared the hope that I have in Christ. And Lord, you opened a door and I confess that I did not open my mouth. And therefore, the door to his heart was not opened. God, I pray that we will be people whose affections are for Christ, that we are captured and enamored by the work and the person of Jesus Christ, the man who, the God-made man who came and lived the absolutely perfect life, flawless, and therefore he is absolutely righteous, and he died on the cross taking our sin and our shame and giving us His righteousness so that in our death to ourself, we can come alive in Christ, the power of the resurrection. 
God, I pray that we will be people. That we will be a church whose hearts are just caught up with Christ. Almost in an obsessive, compulsive kind of way. Where we are just obsessed with the work of Christ. Your ongoing work in our life, Jesus. We are obsessive about what you're doing. And we, cannot, we become compulsive where we cannot help but talk about and share. So Lord, make it true of us. Every one of us. And God, I pray for that man or that woman this morning who is hearing about this good news and may have been hearing it their entire life. They may have even been raised in the church, but they've never been truly confronted. And Lord, you have, you have opened up their heart this morning. Lord, would they respond by faith that you are their Lord and Savior. Would you make a way for them this morning to respond to the hope of Christ. And Lord, I, as we wrap up this time, we do come to the table. We, we, we come as sinners saved by grace. Men and women and children who, who still struggle with our being conformed to the image of Christ. But Lord, we know that the one who has called us into worship calls us to a table to be reminded that my body was broken for you and my blood was poured out for you. And would you be nourished by this good news of the gospel? And would it feed you and empower you? And Lord, so would you greet us at this table? Nourish us, feed us, reassure us. Would you strengthen our union with Christ by these common everyday elements of bread and juice? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,